I began to see that rest was not something that interrupted your life, but that rest was something that gave you life. And I think a lot of times when we talk about self-care and rest, it's almost like a chore that we got to do on the side till we get back to the important thing. But what Sabbath taught me was that rest is the important thing. Welcome to the Mindful Rebel Podcast, the podcast where mindfulness and leadership intersect. My name is Sean Moore, and I create sacred space for personal discovery and self-exploration. Whether that's through this podcast platform, design and branding services, sound healing and yoga nidra, workshop and presentation facilitation, or Gallup certified strengths coaching. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Minister Only Love Chica Austin. Only Love is a veteran faith-based community organizer, minister, and author of the book, Prophetic Whirlwind, Uncovering the Black Biblical Destiny, a book focused on African and African-American Hebrew communities and based on six years of research, which included travel to Ghana, Togo, Nigeria, Morocco, and Israel. She was born in Brooklyn, New York, and currently lives in Harlem, New York. Prophetic Whirlwind, Uncovering the Black Biblical Destiny, won Book of the Year from the 2019 Great Awakening Conference. Only Love is one of the few African Americans to visit and minister among the Lost Tribe of Israel communities in West Africa. Welcome to the this episode of the Mindful Rebel Podcast. I'm excited to be back. Um, been on a bit of a break with the podcast, um, living a little life, but that's always great uh, to circle back around and share some of those experiences. But today I have a really amazing guest. Um, I'm happy to share space with Minister Only Love Chica Austin. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. It's an honor to be on. The honor is mine. I had the opportunity to meet um, Only Love at the Auburn Seminary Emerging Spiritual Leaders Conference. Um, was that September? September, Yes, right? it was yes. September, yep. In September. And, you know, it, it was a great uh, two days and a great opportunity to really connect on a lot of different levels. And, you know, we didn't get a chance to kind of connect one-on-one, but I was happy to be able to, like, I think she'd be a great podcast guest just in in seeing your presence in the space. And I was like, I want to learn more about her and her journey. So I'm glad we were able to kind of circle back around um, and extend the conversation past the the conference in that way. So thank you. You're welcome. It was an honor to to meet you during that as well. So the place I like to start all of our, all these conversations, just to get the listeners more acclimated to who you are. And um, if you could talk to me a little bit about your journey and how that's brought you to where you are now, you know, as a spiritual leader and a community organizer, talk to me about your journey and what that looked like. So um, my journey, my spiritual journey actually started at about 10 when I felt led to pray morning, noon and night and read the Psalms which um, for those who may not know, the Psalms are written by King David and various Levites in their prayers, poems, and songs. They can be very raw, but I wasn't raised in a religious home. And by the age of seven, I did experience um, foster care and homelessness and then was taken in by my grandmother and aunt. And so after four years of 
praying and reading the Bible on my own and taking a world religions class in my middle school program. Um, I walked to a neighborhood Baptist church and accepted Yahshua. Many know him as Jesus, as my redeemer. And my journey started, um, you know, from 10, but outside of the walls of a faith institution. And as the years went, went on, um, I began to, you know, get involved in Christian organizations and ministries, but um, around college, seeing, you know, the church's silence against racism when at Penn State hate crimes were happening to my friends and Black football players, I began to really start to question what I was believing and how could people be so silent in the face of injustice when Yeshua was constantly crying out about injustice. And so um, from there, I took an African-American religion class and read God of the Oppressed by the late Dr. James Cone, who's known as the father of Black liberation theology. Um, when I read God of the Oppressed, I finally began to see the connections between, I um, began to see the connections between um, the pages of the scriptures and what I experienced growing up in Brooklyn. Um, and I began to see, you know, that the Most High was on the side of people like me. And so what I began to realize is what I was witnessing wasn't, you know, true scriptural faith, but a perversion of it. As time went on, I did go to Union Theological Seminary in large part to take classes with Dr. Cohn, who passed last year. And um, I continued my learning. But after college, uh, I mean, after seminary, I began to want to observe the biblical Sabbath on Saturday, um, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And I learned that many tribes in Africa observed the Sabbath long before um, Christian or Islamic missionary activity. Um, and there's a great book called um, Sabbath Roots, the African Connection by Charles E. Bradford. And um, he, he chronicles that, you know, the indigenous nature of taking one day a week to rest. And after seminary, I, you know, have been working for a few years in faith-based organizing. A lot of um, videos of Black folks being killed by police were online. Um, and, you know, I realized if I didn't reorganize my life, I, like so many young organizers and activists, I wasn't going to make it. Um, I started getting terrible allergies, so I was eating very healthy because they were stress-related, not food-related. And so I began to embrace the Sabbath as a, a tradition of my ancestors, knowing that in places like Ghana, where millions of us were taken from, Sabbath was actually observed as a day of rest and a day of worship not because of any missionary activity, but because that was the indigenous culture. Um, and so I began to study the Sabbath and the biblical feasts. I took a pause from attending church and I really went back to what I did at 10, which was reading the Bible and praying on my own to make sure that I wasn't just following like a cultural um, American Christianity, but making sure I was actually following the biblical faith. Um, with implementing Sabbath, my, my career as a faith organizer and advocate became much more um, fruitful. And um, I began to lead a nonprofit network of over 100 congregations um, that were working for justice. Um, 
I began to study um, Hebrew tribes in Africa or what some people would call Jewish tribes in places like um, Nigeria, where the Igbo are from. And one in four African-Americans have Igbo ancestry since the Igbos lost some of the highest numbers of people to the transatlantic slave trade. And the mm. Alstons, um, where I get my last name from, was one of the largest old, largest slave-owning families in America. And so, um, and we did some, you know, testing of one of our patriarchs and found that we, you know, we do have ancestry that goes back to Nigeria. And so part of my spiritual journey has been going to West Africa to um, minister among and learn from Hebrew tribes in West Africa and Ghana and um in nigeria i've been to every Igbo state except for one i've been to israel to um meet the african hebrew israelites i've been to togo to morocco and so with my spiritual journey what i learned is rest the sabbath being rooted in my ancestors culture and also travel have been three pillars that have helped me be mindful in my justice work and, and be mindful of my spirit. Mm. So you touched on, and, and thank you for, for sharing. I, you touched on a lot of points that I was like, I'm sitting here taking notes like, Ooh, okay. We got to go back to the, so this whole idea, and I just had a conversation about this not too long ago with a good friend, just about this whole idea of folks who are in, um, community, specifically community organizing, but anybody that's in like a very service oriented um, type of work where we folks are constantly pouring into others, you know, it's really important to monitor how you're refilling, you know, your own cup and what that looks like. And you mentioned like rest being part of what that spiritual practice or that spiritual journey looks like for you. Um, what tips or, or, or what would you say to folks who are kind of in this same sort of path um, who may have some trouble recognizing maybe the importance or the impactfulness of what rest looks like? So that's a big question because in our society, we don't value Sabbath anymore. And sadly, even cultures like Ghana that really value Sabbath to the point where if you were a boy or a girl born on Saturday, you were um, deemed a special child, which is why the name Kwame is so popular because it's Saturday-born boy. But um, sadly, when colonialism and slavery came to Africa, millions who observed a day of rest were now brought to the Americas and never given a day of rest. So even when I practice Sabbath, and I know not everyone has that luxury, I do it also as an act of resistance for my ancestors who were not given a day of rest. And so rest is really important because if you're just going, 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 you can't actually think about what you're doing or what use is it to fight for a more just society when you're not even enjoying your family, your friends and your community. Um, so, you know, with Sabbath rest, it gives, gave me time to carve out for my family for my friends. Um, I did find um, a 66-year-old Messianic Hebrew congregation in the South Bronx that was started by an African-American woman, Mother Mickens, who has since passed on 66 years ago. But I began to see that rest was not something that interrupted your life, but that rest was something that gave you life. And I think a lot of times when we talk about self-care and rest, 
it's almost like a chore that we got to do on the side till we get back to the important thing. But what Sabbath taught me was that rest is the important thing that even when you read in Genesis, you know, um, the most high God created the heavens and the earth in six days and created man and the animals. And then even the most high God rested on Sabbath. So, you know, and that's a lesson, you know, people might say, well, did he literally like lay down or something like that? But it, it's a, it's a lesson. It's a principle in Genesis that if the creator of the universe needs a pause, how much more so his creation. Wow. Uh, yes. For someone who's been engaging in this conversation around taking time to this recharge, I haven't heard it framed that way. And that's just kind of like, open my mind i'm like wow that yeah yeah Yeah. you got me stumped over here i'm like huh and one thing i want to add is um among uh, um tribes like the Igbo of nigeria the the sefwi of ghana who i've been honored to visit they are covered in the documentary doing jewish a story from ghana what i learned is um and in scripture in the hebrew bible the old testament every seven years, the land is supposed to have a Sabbath. And every 50 years, you know, the land has a Sabbath. Um, People who have debts are cleared of those debts. Even every seven years, the debts are supposed to have a rest, which is why on your credit report, they're not supposed to have negative debts or negative credit items past seven years. If they do, you can actually legally get those removed. So once I began to keep like a Sabbath day, I began to learn that, you know, even creation is supposed to have a pause. But right now we're ruining our environment. I organized around the Hurricane Sandy rebuild for about two years in New York City. And, you know, um, I know many people will argue, but climate change is real. And because we're not giving the creation the commandment, commanded rest, that the creator calls for, we're damaging our environment. So, you know, there was something that these tribes in Africa knew about a day to pause. Other tribes had, like the god Dami, had two Sabbaths in the middle of the week. I actually learned of a Jola prophetess from the Jola people of Senegal, who in the 40s, um, she took on French colonialists and their um, imported values because her people um, rested every sixth day and they planted rice, but the French colonialists had them planting peanuts for the profits and also had, they stopped, they started to neglect their sixth day of rest. And the Jola have these prophets and prophetesses among their people who, you know, would give prophecies about what the people should do. And she gave a prophecy that the people needed to return to their day of rest. And she was exiled. Um, I think to Molly and lost her life. She died around 44 because she was advocating for a day of rest. Actually, among the Igbo and Ashanti, if you constantly um, worked on the seventh day Sabbath, you were not allowed to partake in festivals, parties, um, and you could be exiled from the community or even worse than that. I don't want to bring the listeners down, but it was very serious now imagine um, i'm sorry about that imagine if um you're an Igbo person who's enslaved like olu equiano the first person to write a slave narrative um from the transatlantic slave trade he was an Igbo prince who was kidnapped as a child now imagine every week you observe the adults around you resting you rest and now you're taking into transatlantic slavery 
and you're not given a day of rest. Imagine what that would do to your psyche. And so, mm. you know, every time I keep the Sabbath, I'm also doing it in honor of those millions taken from Ghana who can never, who they made them work on Saturday. If you got any day off, it would be a Sunday. But for those tribes, the day was very important as well. So um, Sabbath can truly be an act of resistance. And I think Rabbi um, Abraham, Joshua Hetzel, I think, who marched with King also wrote about Sabbath. And he was a, a huge advocate for justice. Um, and so, you know, um, it's, it's something really um, necessary, especially for people of color, that we allow ourselves that that day of of rest um and some of our ancestors even risked their lives to keep it um the the jews of uganda who i was um, blessed to welcome the first woman rabbinical student from africa to the hebrew union um theology theology school in new york we were we welcomed them as a delegation of african americans um, when the Ugandans had tried to keep Sabbath, they had to do it in, in the bush hiding because they would be killed. In South Africa, um, the South African branch of the Church of God and Saints in Christ, which is the oldest Messianic Hebrew denomination in the United States, um, the, when they built their own communities and kept Sabbath, the South African government massacred them and chose to do it on a Sabbath, killed about 300 of them to the point where Nelson Mandela said that the massacre of those Sabbath keepers were, was the worst massacre in South African history. And so there were literally people of African descent dying to rest. And that's really, we are in the 400th mm. year of our captivity in America. And we, many of us, you know, we, we have to fight, you know, to rest. We are dying to rest the hypertension, the depression, the vitamin D deficiency. And, you know, God said it's our right to have one day off. But many of us don't have that, that, um, that human right, that luxury. Oh. And I'm just, I'm just, you know, I, I appreciate your context on this whole idea because it's, you're, you're reframing my thoughts around it as such a, a generational kind of curse that's been put on us around this whole idea of, of resistance to rest um, and what that looks like. Like it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's ingrained in American culture, but then it's also just generationally something that's been taken from us. And so that's why it seems like it feels so foreign when we're talking about or combating ideas of like this grind culture and just like not taking time for yourself. And, you know, there are, I know a lot of people often even talk about feeling selfish when they take a, take time for themselves and like, you know, I don't have time to rest because, you know, I got to do this for everybody else and not really understanding the importance and just how it's ingrained into our, has been ingrained into our culture and something that's been kind of taken away from us over time. I'm just, I'm just like, wow, I, I just hadn't thought contextually thought about it from that perspective before. Yeah, it blew my mind when I found out all these tribes that kept the Sabbath and even the founder of the congregation I attend, Bethel, the house of Yahweh, Mother Mickens, she was a Pentecostal minister. And when she was reading the scriptures and found that, you know, there was a commanded day of rest on Saturday, she took it to her pastor and he said, this is true. And she was in Harlem where I live now. He said, but, we're not going to do that here. So just like a lot of black women 
you know, her husband and her, they started a fellowship in her house and then in her husband's storefront. And then um, her son found the property we're in now. And so, you know, in our congregation, we have African-Americans, we have Africans from, um, one is um, an Igbo mother from the tribe that, you know, was serious about Sabbath. Um, we have Afro-Latinos, we have Caribbeans, we have documented and undocumented folks all in the same, you know, all pausing in the week. And you, you really do um, have to battle against this culture of work, 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 especially in a place like New York City. But the Apostle Paul said, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Sabbath kind of puts you in a place where you, you can't conform to these values. You can't worry, well, if I'm not on my email all the time, will I miss the opportunity? Actually, what happened for me is I became more productive in the other six days than less, than less productive because you knew I have to get this stuff done and then I have to pause. And so, you know, it, it seems counterintuitive, but if this is something that, you know, for people of African descent, if this is something that millions of our ancestors did, and, and it's even written in the book of Genesis, you know, what um what wisdom did the indigenous people did our did our ancestors have you know that we have lost and really not just lost but it was taken from us mm -hmm. and so outside of rest you, you talk a lot about travel you know and then the spiritual practice around that and what that's done for you can you talk a little bit more to that point of how you've um framed travel in that way and and yeah so um, in my journey, um, I actually was invited to Africa by an Igbo elder, Elder Cletus Okoro of the House of Israel, Nigeria, to um, visit some of the, the Hebrew congregations in Nigeria um, to do some women's empowerment and Torah lessons that I, I do for sisters even in America here online and um, was invited to Ghana and Togo. Um, and so I, you know, um, all of the, these trips were researched also for my book that um, came out this past April, Prophetic World When Uncovering the Black Biblical Destiny, where I go into, you know, the Black roots of the Bible, who the, the people of the scriptures are in these different traditions that have been preserved in Africa. Um, and so when I went on various travels, um, and when I went to Israel, I was invited by um, a black woman from the African Hebrew Israelites. And um, the tour guide was also a Bedouin Arab. So we were able to go to Jericho and see the um, Jericho has many black communities. Um, there are many Afro-Palestinians um, in Israel and Palestine that are being oppressed by everyone. So I was able to go on a justice-focused trip, and that's the only way I would go. But... Um, each time I traveled, you know, I was going to, you know, to research and for the book, but there would be spiritual experiences that I would have, like, you know, being taken to Jericho by um, the Arab Bedouin brother, Eunice. And as soon as we get out of the van, the most beautiful, dark skinned, you know, black little boy shakes our hands and welcomes us all to Jericho. And then I found out from my friend, um, UK Jamaican um, filmmaker Stephen Graham who covers like indigenous black communities in Israel 
that, oh yeah, there's like seven, you know, black communities in Jericho and found out they all live as sharecroppers and they're under Arab Palestinians. So that was an eye opener or, you know, going to West Africa and having the emotions of standing in the slave castle, but then knowing there's some triumph for my ancestors that I'm back or, you know, a whole village in Arachupu, a kingdom in Igbo land where most of the slave enslaved people were taken from, you know, having a whole village welcome me home and, and going into an Igbo um, Hebrew congregation on Sabbath and the kids singing, we welcome you home. And for me, because I spent part of my childhood homeless, this whole idea of being welcomed home was deeper than, oh, we know your ancestors might've been taken from us, but it was almost like, full circle for my family, especially being owned by one of the top 10 slave owning families in America. Um, and so there's each time I traveled, I was stretched, you know, you got to have a lot of patience, especially when you're on African time, there's coast, there's CP time and then there's African time. And I love my African family. So they know I say that with love, but you have to have patience, you have to have courage. You know, um, there are so many people that would never go to Nigeria um, for whatever security reasons. But I, you know, for me to go, you know, as a woman, it really, and to spend months living in Ghana, um, in Kumasi, the capital of the Ashanti kingdom, and to be there when the queen mother died, and then a year later when they planned her celebration of life, and it took a year to plan, you know, to see an older black woman honored in that way that I never saw before, that, you know, it, it helped teach me something spiritually. And so travel really, um, you know, and I've, I've been to different countries in Europe and also Morocco, but travel to me, this whole idea of taking a pilgrimage, it really shows me how the Most High can teach you spiritual lessons when you're not in your environment. And in scripture, three times a year, there are pilgrimages that um, the Hebrew people would take to Jerusalem. Um, Mahalia Jackson has a famous song, uh, Marching to Jerusalem, because they would march and they would sing psalms of ascent and call and response. If you study Hebrew, you um, find that out. And just like we sing and call and response because those were Black people. But um, one thing about taking a pilgrimage is you, you would expect to meet the most high God when you, when you did that pilgrimage to Jerusalem or people, some people do the pilgrimage of St. James and Europe. There's this whole idea of in travel, you'll meet the, um, the most high God in a new way because you're out of your environment. And sometimes when you're out of your comfort zone, there's just lessons that you learn about yourself and about humanity that you can't learn when you're comfortable. And so I really take travel as, you know, a spiritual practice, being able to be in cultures where they, you know, um, Sabbath was valued for many different years, that that was a learning, or just seeing um, how different tribes in Africa, um, you know, take women's leadership, so that helped me to start leading um, in deeper ways in, in my life, and so travel has definitely helped me spiritually, and so I really, really enjoy um, traveling, um, especially for people, for, um, you know, our folks here in America, you have to travel 
back to West Africa, not just to any part of Africa. I love all of Africa, but there's something about going back to West Africa that really will transform you. Mm. So you talked about, you know, your book, um, Prophetic Whirlwind. Can you talk to me, um, you know, and share with me with my, li- with my listeners as well, a little bit more about your book and then maybe a- about the process or maybe any insights you learned about yourself just in the writing process um, of the book. Yeah, so thank you. Um, Prophetic World when Uncovering the Black Biblical Destiny goes through um, Genesis to all the way, you know, to current times. And it looks at um, the culture that the scriptures were written in. So some people say, well, I don't know if Adam and Eve or Abraham and Sarah really existed. But I always say, well, the scribes who wrote the scriptures literally existed and they, they had a color. So I don't go back and forth um, with people about certain things and, um, you know, comparing um, the, especially the culture from the Hebrew Bible, the old Testament to West African culture, for instance, drink offerings are mentioned in scripture about 31 times and in West Africa is preserved as libations or this seventh day of rest that you see many tribes in Africa Um, having or you know the fact that millions of Hebrew people especially after the temples were destroyed ran into Africa and remained there until this day I'm trying to dispel this myth that the Bible is um, a white man's book it took about six years of research um, academic documents the Schomburg um, Center for Um, African-American research in Harlem, that library, I had to go there because they have one of the largest collections of books on African and African-American Hebrew or Jewish communities, um, including, you know, books written about um, like the the martyrs that were thrown to the lions that were actually people of African descent. Um, That book is The Blacks Who Died for Jesus, going on the ground and interviewing kings and queen mothers from these tribes, going to palaces, going to villages, going to um, temples and in Hebrew um, congregations in Africa, and really doing the ground research, interviewing people who may be in America, but from these tribes, and then really um, also researching um, the hidden history, uh, the hidden Hebrew history of the African-American church, that the fact that Church of God and Saints and Christ, the largest black denomination in America, was um, started by Bishop Mason, Charles Mason, but he studied, he was a part of a Messianic Hebrew congregation that taught that Jesus, the biblical characters, and the chosen people were black and kept the Sabbath and the biblical feasts. Um, He was in that um, tradition for five years before launching Kojic. And, you know, one thing about the pilgrimage feast from the Bible, um, their Passover, Shavuot, which we know as Pentecost and Sukkot, which we're in now. I'm headed to a campsite to keep Sukkot with my congregation. This is the one holiday where you can get masses of Black people to camp. Um, (laughs) Sukkot, um, Black Jews or Hebrews, everyone's camping or glamping like me but um this um in my book we talk about why is it important to take these pilgrimages what do these holidays mean and um then i go into you know what does this all mean for justice today because you can you know 
what is, you know, you can find out a lot of cool stuff about our history, whether it's connected to the Bible or not, but what does this mean for our people today? And, and you know, what is the point of having a chosen people? Because it is my belief in my tradition that, you know, the biblical Hebrews were black and are black, but what's the point of chosen people? Is it to oppress people? Is it to, you know, take over a land and, and treat, um, you know, Palestinian people bad? No, the point of just being chosen is that you were chosen to teach humanity how to reconcile to God and each other and how to do justice. And I believe there's a certain spiritual gift that our people have um, for the world that's proven through, you know, our movements for justice, our music and those different things, but we need to know who we are. So I say, you know, millions of black people read the Bible every day and it's like, we're looking in the mirror, but we can't recognize our own face. Wow. Hmm. So with that, what, you know, as, as someone who's developed, taken their, their, this research, this voice that you have around this as an author, what, what have you learned or what, what, what piece of advice would you share with someone else who's um, interested maybe in developing um, or just writing a book just in general, what advice would you give to someone who's kind of going down or exploring that path similarly? So the first thing is, you know, I am, um, through Red Letter Christians, I was able to be connected to someone who gave me an, a template for a, a book proposal, you know, because I was doing years of research and people said, you have to write a book because I was posting on social media to reach young people and teaching at different congregations. So first writing a book proposal. And then, you know, I talked to different agents, different publishers, but you have to know the story that you absolutely want to tell because there were a lot of people who wanted um, kind of like my biography because of being homeless in foster care and then going to an Ivy League and all of that. And I'm not ashamed of my background. I share my story, but I personally think if you're of a certain age, it's a little bit presumptuous to write a biography when you haven't lived that long. And plus mm. for me, um, I had a spiritual mandate to write prophetic whirlwind now. When it's time for me to write my life story, that's when I will do it. So, you know, if you're a spiritual person, you have to spiritually discern what is the story you have to write right now, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, and you have to stay on that square because there were many, you know, especially Christian publishers, they wanted that story, but they didn't want the story about the people of the scriptures being black. So, Gratefully, I'm Reverend Leroy Barber of the Voices Project, which is a um, it's it's an organization for um, Black Christian or Black um, faith voices to write and to speak. And they have a conference, they have a writing conference, and then a private gathering for speakers and authors. And he launched um, a publishing imprint, Voices Publishing, and he chose Prophetic Whirlwind as the first book. Um, so I want to thank Voices and Reverend Leroy Barber, but um, Voices is also acquired by InterVarsity Press, but he has published a lot of books and um, his new book is going to be around gentrification and faith and what mm. the two say to each other. And so with him, you know, he supported my vision. The book was edited for, you know, it, couldn't, it was almost 400, 500 pages and people don't really read books that long anymore so it might have been edited for length or for grammar but it wasn't edited for the the content 
Um, you know, I do have citations for everything I say, but, you know, some publishing companies wouldn't have felt comfortable printing some of the truths that I shared. So you also, um, especially for writers of color, you have to make sure no one pigeons you into writing a certain book because I'm, there are many um, books written by European Jewish people about um, lost tribes in Africa or Hebrew tribes in Africa. There's academic books. There's a more, you know, um, non-academic writing about it. And those books get published. They're very popular in the Jewish community. But when it was an African-American woman being one of the first to visit those tribes on the ground, because again, most even um, newspapers like the Jewish Forward, they have reporters who are, I'm, I'm, I know one of the reporters who his beat was African Jewish communities and even African American Jews, because there's a connection to, to prophecy in the Messiah's return and in the lost tribes appearing. So people, you know, um, it was kind of like they, it was okay for other people to tell that story, but you know, people didn't know what to do with an African-American woman um, going over there because there are whole nonprofits where, you know, European people retire and they just search the world for lost tribes. And there, um, you know, weren't that many young African-American women that were taking those same journeys. So you have to know the story you want to tell and you have to kind of have confidence that you need to tell it. And the book's gotten a great reception and one of the Sefwi Jewish elders told me with tears in his eyes that we need African Americans to record our story and tell it. So they get um, Jewish dignitaries from all over the world and they have a very popular documentary. That is the mission he gave me. And in African culture, when an elder tells you something, you you need to listen to it. And so I feel very humbled that these communities allowed me to tell um, to tell their story, but also that they acknowledge that it's our story and they see African-Americans as part and partial with them. But I think for our writers from our community, you have to tell the story that you'll die not writing. If you, if you can't go to your grave without writing this particular book or story, then that's the, the book or story you need to write. Wow. Hmm. And so based on your journey and, you know, how do you define leadership or how does that manifest or what does that look like for you? Oh, um, as a faith-based organizer and a woman of faith, and even in this project, like for me, my um, organizing elder, Willie Baptist of the Cairo Center, which relaunched Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign with Reverend Barber, they were the first group to teach me about organizing, actually, when I was in, um, at Union Seminary. Willie Baptist has organized for about 50 years, and he always told me, leaders, have, um, leaders raise up other leaders. That's how you know you're a leader, not by how many people are following you, not by, you know, how many literal followers you have on Twitter or whatever, but leaders activate and help raise up other leaders. So, you know, when I was visiting the Igbo um, Hebrew women and teaching them about women's empowerment in Torah, one um, Asefwi Hebrew elder mother told me I had to return to them and teach women's empowerment in Torah. And she said it in Twi and it was translated. She knew nothing about what I did for a living. She just pointed me out. But, um, you know, 
when I went to Africa to do that, now there's uh, my sister Debbie um, Samuel. She has an Igbo Jewish women's empowerment group. Or um, the Jewish woman from Uganda that's now at Hebrew Rabbinical School as the first Ugandan woman to be a rabbinical candidate, we met um, maybe two years ago somewhere else, um, you know, or we um, started a women's prayer ministry called Women of the Whirlwind. And from that, other um, women, other women are stepping into their, their ministries. Um, and even um, new ministries are coming from that. So I, I think, you know, leaders don't lord it over people, but like Yeshua, they walk with people and help activate people to be all that the Most High wanted them to be. Wow. How do you define mindfulness? So I define mindfulness as going through life on purpose. So not just letting life happen to you, not just living life, but not examining um, your experiences, but actually going through life with purpose. So pausing to rest, because in rest, you can consider what you're doing, um, reflecting as the years go by, you know, through writing, through silence, um, but not just letting life happen to you, but being intentional about your life and also looking at every experience and saying, what did I learn from this experience? That's what I think mindfulness is. Hmm. And of course, I think your book would definitely be one of these resources, and I'm going to put the link um, in the description of the podcast, but are there any other resources you'd want to share with folks? that may have been impactful for you along your own personal development and growth? Yeah. So um, one other resource I want to share that I mentioned is Sabbath Roots, the African Connection by Charles E. Bradford. Um, and then another book, um, The Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Hetzel. That's the rabbi who marched with King. And for people who are social justice minded, this is one of the liminal texts on Sabbath as a social justice, um, um, a social justice practice. Also, um, I would recommend the documentary films by my friend and big brother, Ronald Dalton Jr., Hebrews to Negroes, volume one and volume two. He researches the same, um, the, the same subject matter I do, but he's actually making black independent films now. And so, and these are totally supported by the black community. Um, he's a young, you know, father and husband out of Detroit and um, really good. Um, if you're looking for like those, you know, how Discovery Channel has their, you know, the life of Jesus, the life of Apostle Paul, um, all these religious documentaries, and maybe they'll have one black scholar in it. Um, Ronald Dalton is making that level of biblical documentaries for um, the Black community that highlights the central role we play to the development of, you know, various, um, you know, to the faith and to the, and to the scriptures. So um, that is another resource. And um, I would say on my website, propheticworldwind.com, I do have um, a study with Prophetic Worldwind tab with classes that you can take about um, you know, biblical traditions in Africa and how they are found in Hebrew culture from weddings to women's roles, which has been definitely twisted by Western society. And also you can sign up for a free PDF 
resource list of links to articles, videos, and also a list of books about um, Hebrew tribes in Africa and about, you know, how we observe Sabbath and our different traditions and, and rituals. So those are a few resources people can look into. Sure. And that information will be posted. Please click right underneath the podcast. If you have your phone in your hand, just click in the description and you can click and you'll be able to see the resources that only love mentioned. Um, so what the question I'd like to, to round out the podcast conversation um, with is, you know, for you at the end of the day, when you think around the work that you do, um, what does legacy look like for you? Oh, wow. So legacy looks like for me, um, definitely having a family um, that, you know, having my descendants know who they are spiritually and know where they're from. Um, legacy for me looks like um, leaders who um, I, I help, people that I help step into the, the leadership that the most high has for them. So people who can say only love helped me, you know, step, have the courage to step into my purpose. Um, but of course, with all glory going to the most high God, um, and legacy also looks for me, looks like our people being in a more just situation, even if I'm not alive to see it, that we won't be in, in this particular, um, reality that we're in now. Wow. Well, listen, only love. This has been a great, um, eye-opening conversation. Um, I appreciate you just, you know, having the time to sit down and chat and, you know, talk to me a little bit about your journey and, and the work that you do. Um, I'm just really thankful that we have the opportunity to, to converse in this way. Um, for my listeners, if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to learn more and want to go deeper than, than our podcast conversation? What's the best way for them to, uh, to learn more? Oh, Juan Sean, thank you so much for having me. It was a blessing meeting you and being on. If you want to contact me, you can go to propheticworldwind.com. I'm also on Twitter at propheticworld, and I'm on Instagram and Facebook at propheticworldwind. I also have a YouTube channel with videos from my travels to visit Hebrews in Africa and also um, Torah portion reflections from a black, um, a black um, kind of cultural context. And, um, but you can definitely see lot, you know, live videos from my travels to Africa and that's prophetic whirlwind as well. Or you could just shoot me an email at info at prophetic whirlwind. And I do re read and respond to my emails. And if anyone needs prayer, they can also um, shoot that out um, in the email format as well. And thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, all that information about how to get in contact with Only Love will be in the description. So if you have any questions, click the description. Um, you'll find all the information that you need. Again, thank you for taking the time out to chat. This has been uh, an amazing conversation. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Shalom, everyone. Thank you for your continued support for the Mind for Rebel podcast. Your support means everything. And it's the field that keeps me going as I continue to have these amazing conversations with these really dope guests. So if you want to learn more about the podcast, please subscribe. 
The Mindful Rebel Podcast is found on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, including Spotify, including Anchor FM, and any other podcast platform you can probably name. If you want to learn more about the work that I do uh, with Yoga Nidra, Sound, Gallup Certified Strengths Coaching, and Branding Services, uh, please go to my website. That's SeanJMoore.com. SeanJMoore.com. Again, thank you. Your support means the world.